0: If you would bow with me and let's uh, pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the time that we have here together. I thank you for each person that you have brought to this place today, that you know each one and you know them intimately. You know their deepest needs. You know where they're struggling today. And I I thank you that you've gathered us together uh, to worship your name, to hear from your word, to be able to come directly to you in prayer. And for all these things, we thank you. We pray that as we open your word together today, that you would speak directly to us, that the Holy Spirit would be here to be our guide and our teacher, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you would open them to be able to see the truth of your word and what you've called us to. We pray this morning as we think of uh, some of the more difficult areas, the things that we sometimes struggle with in Scripture, the things that can lead us to doubt, that you would meet us, in the middle of those things that you would show us uh, your good gracious plan that you are at work even when we don't fully comprehend or understand and we thank you for that Uh, i pray that you would speak directly through your word empowered by the spirit to each person here today their hearts their minds that you would draw them close to you and they would see clearly what a wonderful and good and gracious and loving god you are We pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, I read an article this week uh, thinking uh, actually I read a couple recently, but one in particular this week thinking about this series that we've been doing. If you've been with us, we've been this is our last of four weeks of just this series. Uh, We got the title from Jude in verse 22 that says, be merciful with those who doubt. And we've been talking about the things that can bring doubt and struggles. And so, uh, this week we're actually going to talk about the idea of can a good loving God, how can hell exist and be compatible with who God is. And so as I was thinking on that and reading different articles and different things, I read one article that was, that was fairly interesting. Some of it got a little heavy for me, but it was about, um, uh, some guys had done some research on seeing if like, uh, Cultures that believed predominantly in heaven and hell uh, were more or less violent crimes. And it was real interesting because I don't even know how you get to all this stuff, but they had taken all this research and all these things and all these points and they put it together with the data about what they knew about actual crime statistics. And so they had written this big study about it. But the article I read was a guy interacting with their study. And so this guy, I believe I'm saying this right, he was a research psychologist. And so he he spent most of his time in research, but that was his background. And so he was interacting with their findings because their findings said that in societies that did believe in heaven and hell as very real and literal places. The crime was less. And so he he didn't really uh, it became apparent as you read the article, he didn't really like their findings. And so he's kind of critiquing some of the things they said. And was a very, very technical article. So what stood out to me is it was all about the data points and what they saw and how they put it together. And so he's interacting with all these things. But here was the thing that he comes to at the end. So all of it's very about the numbers, very analytical. But then you get to the end and this is what he says at the end. Belief in hell is related to belief in evil and in the devil. And although I do not have proof, I would venture a guess that belief in hell At a national level is probably associated with greater support for retributive policies such as capital punishment and torture, as well as with prejudice against people who violate religious norms such as gays. Aside from being extremely cruel thing to believe in, the idea of hell may have done more harm to society than good. And so here's the thing that struck me when I read the article. Everything he said was about data points and being analyzing and all this stuff. But then he gets to the end and he throws all that out the window and says, now I'm going to tell you how I feel about it. And I don't like it. And so it had nothing to do with any of the stuff in the entire article. And so I bring that up and I start there because a lot of times that's our gut level reaction. That's kind of what we want to do. Like, uh, I don't know about that. I, I don't like the way it sounds. I'm not sure how to handle that. And so we say things like this guy. Well, I don't really have any proof for it, but I feel like it's probably not good. And here's why. And so I want us to think about this idea. And I think this is the way we could summarize it when we struggle with it. It's how can a good and loving God allow people or send people or put them away to hell forever? How does that work and how does that hold together? And that's what I want us to look at and think about today. Because that is a big area that causes doubt and struggles. It's probably one of the biggest objections to historic Christian faith today in our culture. It's almost a non-starter. I was talking to my brother this week. Jeremiah does all sorts of apologetic type things at Rice University. He goes there regularly. And he said, I probably spend 75% of my time answering questions about the idea of hell. That that is the biggest area that people struggle with. And so what I want us to do today as we talk about it and think about it is first, I just want us to think about what the Bible says about it. What is it the Bible teaches and what does it say about it? We'll do that just kind of brief overview. Secondly, I want us to consider why we have such a big problem with it. And so what does the Bible say? Why do we have such a big problem with it? And then lastly, how do we live with this or wrestle with it or go forward in honoring God and seeking him and all of this? So let's start with just the idea of what does the Bible have to say about it. Mike read to you just a second ago in our reading this morning from Revelation chapter 14. And I'm always weary of, of kind of jumping into Revelation and just giving you a little piece. But just big idea of the book of Revelation, we can summarize it this way. is it's, it's talking about things that are going on in the world, the things that are. And then the things that are to be, John says, are the things that are coming. And then it's a series of visions That God has given to the Apostle John about what is to come. And I think when we get to chapter 14, we're seeing a picture of the end of time judgment when Jesus returns again. And so what he's showing and what he's talking about is the judgment that's to come. And so it says this in verse nine of Revelation, chapter 14. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast... And it's image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured out full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. And so I want you just to consider for just a second a few things that this passage tells us as it talks about this final judgment. And the first thing that you need to understand that the Bible says, and it doesn't just say it here, it says it over and over again, is this this idea of hell, that hell is eternal. You see it there in, in verse 11. It goes on forever and ever They have no rest day or night. Uh, It's it's not just in Revelation. It's just not in the kind of admittedly very um, uh, filled with imagery that you see in Revelation, but we see it in other places. For example, John the Baptist says in Matthew 3 as Jesus kind of shows up on the scene and John is preparing the way and he's talking about the one is to come. And he says this, he says he's coming and he's bringing his winnowing fork in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And that's John the Baptist talking about Jesus. He says he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and he's going to baptize with fire. And he's coming in this way and he talks about Jesus in those terms. Or or if you turn later in Matthew and you see Jesus begin to talk about our sin and the seriousness of it. In, In Matthew chapter 18. He's talking about dealing with your sin and he says it's better for you to cut off your hand or to gouge out your eye than to go into hell with your entire body. And then he says this is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet than to be thrown into the eternal fire. Jesus talks about this idea of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Sometimes we, we, we gloss over that. We say Jesus is full of mercy and love and grace, and he is. But he's also the one that talks about hell more than anyone else. A little later in Matthew chapter 25, he'll talk about those that come before him on the last judgment day. And he says there will be some that stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And he said, I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And then he summarizes the end this way, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And I want you to understand Jesus says there, and this is very important when we begin to talk about uh, what the Bible teaches on hell and what it means and the way we look at it. Jesus compares eternal life with eternal torment, and he puts the two together. He says, one, these will go away. It talks about the goats and the sheeps and he will separate them and these will go away to eternal torment and these to eternal life. And they seem to be in the same way that he would say eternal life for those that are in Christ. Those that are not will go away to this for eternity. And so the first thing that we need to say that the Bible says is that it's eternal. The second thing that we need to say, and you see it also here in Revelation 14 in verse 10 It says they will drink the wine of God's wrath poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb and the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And so the second thing the Bible says is not only is it eternal, it is torment. And so we start to say those things and suddenly you go, yeah, that's why we kind of gloss over it. So we don't shine a big light on that. So our culture goes, "Ooh, I don't I don't like that. But the scripture tell us this. Uh, they say this in, in John uh, chapter three. John three it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This is right after Jesus and his interaction with Nicodemus, and he's asking him, How is he saved and what does he look like? And he says, You put your faith in the Son. And then it says this at the end, as John summarizes, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. And so it says it's this eternal torment. But then the third thing it says is it says it is due to the wrath of God. Which that's where we go. Oh, wait a second. And this gets right to the heart of the struggle we have. How can this good and loving and gracious God pour out his wrath in all eternity on those that haven't believed in Jesus? But it tells us that it is due to Jesus's wrath. Uh, Paul will say it this way in Romans chapter two. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I use that verse a lot. I think we're called to share the gospel in that way. The kindness of God leads to repentance. We're to show grace to people in the way God has showed grace to us. And it changes hearts. God works in that. And I really love that verse. And I talk about it a lot. And God's kindness leads us to repentance, so be kind and gracious and love people. But the next thing he says, it's meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't you know? That God allows you to continue on and he loves you and he's gracious and he's kind. But if you continue to reject him, his wrath is coming. On the day of judgment. And so the Bible talks about this picture. Eternal. Torment. Due to the wrath of God. In Matthew 3, Jesus describes it as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. An unquenchable fire where the worm never dies. And we can quickly go, but, but that's very figurative language. I think it is. But what is the figure that Jesus is trying to get across and using that figurative language? Unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. He's showing the seriousness and the weightiness of this. And again, let me remind you, Jesus talks about this more than anyone else. And so what we have, the consistent witness of the Bible, is that it's eternal and it's torment and it's due to God's wrath. But thankfully, wonderfully, that's where Jesus comes. To save us. As Jesus goes to the cross, he says, I will become your sin on your behalf and I will take the wrath of God in your place if you would just put your faith in me. If you would just trust Him, If you just admit that I cannot do this on my own and I need Jesus to do it for me, he says, I will gladly do so. He says, I will bear what you deserve. In your place, by grace, through faith, I will gladly take it. Just come to me. And that is the call of the gospel. That is the good news. And we say, yes, thankfully, wonderfully, God is so gracious and he's done that for us. But if we're honest, so many reject him. And the rest of the Bible says they will go away Forever. And God's wrath will be poured out on them. What do I do with that? That's what it says. That's what it tells us. And so we have a problem with that oftentimes and we struggle with that. I don't like the way that sounds. Why does it have to be eternal? Or, Or why like that? Or or how does that work and how does that hold together? And our culture today rejects that completely. And, And that's become very the norm. Our culture rejects it and we go, yeah, that sounds terrible and I can't believe in a God like that. And so I want us to think about why we have that issue, why we struggle with that. And here's what I would say to you, and I would ask you to wrestle with with me as we think about this. Let us be informed with what God's word says and not what our culture says. Let us wrestle with what God tells us clearly in his word and fight to see what he has revealed to us over and above our initial gut reaction to how we feel about it. So what is it that the Bible tells us? If you've ever been here before, you've probably heard me say this, but it is so important to this issue. The first thing that we need to start with is this. That all sin, sin is not against other people, but it is a direct affront against God. Your sin and my sin is because we have rebelled against the holy, righteous God that has created us and held us together by his own doing. That he loves us and he made this creation and we have decided to ignore him. Sin. Other people are hurt by sin, but our sin is against God. It's the biblical definition. We have ignored and rebelled against and told God we're not going to do the things that he's told us that we're going to do it our own way. And our sin is against God. And this is so important for us to begin to see because in our culture we downplay sin. You go, well, yeah, I make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. And we kind of toss it off to the side that way. And we don't see it as God sees it. Sin is a direct rebellion against our Creator. And I would say to you, none of us see it rightly. And if we want to get a glimpse at it, to really try to get a handle on what that looks like, I always, uh, in, in my mind, I go to Isaiah chapter six. And Isaiah six is the prophet Isaiah standing in heaven before God. He's in the throne room with the holy, righteous creator God that holds all things together and he stands in his presence. And do you know what he says? He says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. And he falls on his face. Faced with the perfect righteousness of God, he immediately sees how he is in his presence. And he says, woe is me. You know, the next thing he says, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He becomes so readily aware of the sin, his own sin, and the sin of our culture and our world, and he falls on his face. And we don't see it that way. In fact, you can read that or you could tell that and people would laugh at it. That's ridiculous. And we've missed that. We've missed our sin before a holy, righteous, perfect God. That leads me to the second thing. Not only have we missed our sin in our finiteness, we cannot comprehend or value the infinite glory and worth of God. We not only see our sin as far too small, we see God's glory as far too small. We make God one of us. Well, this is the way I would handle it or this is what I would do. And so God probably would be kind of the same. And we make God one of us instead of him being something wholly other, far greater than what we are. And so we downplay our sin and then we don't understand the holiness of God. And so our reaction becomes directly proportional to our misunderstanding of the greatness of God. And I would say to you, that may sound counterintuitive. Well, if God is so great, he should be able to forgive everything. It should be wonderful. And everybody in, in his love and his mercy. And so, no, I'm not saying he's less than I'm saying he's better than that. And that's the kind of the way we talk. But when we do that, we miss not only God's glory in his mercy and his love, but we miss his justice. We miss that God is holy and perfect in every way. And we want to collapse Him into one thing, mainly just his love or what we perceive to be his love. And we push aside his justice and we don't see him for fully who he is. We don't see the fullness of his glory in his value. And so we downplay those things and we go, yeah, that just doesn't make sense to me. When I try to wrestle with that idea of God's justice, perfect justice. I may have told this before. It's been a long time. But thinking about what it would be like if someone, whoever it is, you fill in the blank of who it is in your life, whoever you are closest to in your life that you love above anyone else. Your children, your spouse, your parents, those that are closest to you. And I want you to imagine for a moment that they were killed. They were murdered. Brutally, shamelessly, horribly, they are murdered. And you're sitting in the courtroom as they've caught the person that's killed your loved one. And as you sit there and you go through the court case, they admit that they did it. They not only admit, but when they allocute to what they did, they stand up and they say, yeah, and they beg for mercy and I did it anyway. What that would do to your sense of justice. The heartache and the heartbreak in that of seeing that in this wrong. And you get to the end of the trial and the judge says, I'm really gracious and I'm really loving, so I'm going to let you go. What would that do? To you. I want you to think about the deepest person you love and you're holding that together and you're thinking, what in the world is happening here? How can that be? And, and that sense of injustice we feel when we think about that, that picture that's there, that is in our finite sinful self. And we say, no, 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 that cannot be. And I want you to imagine that time's infinite. An infinite, holy God who is perfect justice in every way. And we say, no, 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 God won't do that. He won't inflict justice forever. And it goes directly to the heart of our misunderstanding of who God is and his perfect nature. And so we struggle with these things. We struggle mightily with them in different ways. But I, I want to give you one more thing that the scripture clearly says. And knowing full well, as I say it, that it's still going to be hard. And that we recoil when we hear it. But the scripture tells us very, very clearly that no one ends up in hell who doesn't deserve it. The flip side to that. No one ends up in heaven who does deserve it. The only way that anyone is because of God's grace. Because Jesus would willingly take your wrath in your place. It is by grace through faith, and there's nothing else. And so we want to recoil and we want to go, oh, that sounds awful. But you need to put it in the proper context that none of us deserves anything but hell. And the fact that God has seen fit to save any, even one, is showing immeasurably His grace. And yet He does. And He doesn't just save one or hundreds or thousands, but millions upon millions. By His grace, He saves. And so we struggle with that. And we come up with ideas to combat that. But what about the person who hadn't heard? Or what about the person that didn't know? Or what if they and we try to make those kind of objections? You know, Paul answers that in Romans one. He says what can be clearly perceived in the world. That God has given us his special revelation, that is his creation that points to his infinite worth and magnitude and glory. He says we can clearly perceive it in creation since the beginning of time. And so we are without excuse. He's been given us his specific revelation in his word. He's told us clearly. Now Sometimes we object and we go, well, what about the person who never had the Bible and they never had this? Francis Schaeffer had a wonderful analogy. And he used to talk about how when you were born, imagine they hung an invisible tape recorder around your neck. Schaefer, I'm dating it a little bit. Tape recorder. Some of you may not know what a tape recorder is. Imagine your phone clicked on to record everything you said. Every time you say you should or you should be about this or you should do that or you gave advice to anyone. And so he says it records. It only comes on to record your own voice when you tell other people how they should live. And he said, and then imagine as you stand before God on the day of judgment, he takes the tape recorder off your neck, and you go, Yeah, but I didn't know. I hadn't heard. And he pushes play, and you hear your own voice telling you all these things about the way you feel that people should live, and yet here's all these ways that you violated every one of them. He says, Your conscience bears witness, and you will be without excuse. And so when you say all these things, And you put them all together. That we miss the magnitude of sin and how great God is. That we are guilty. We are culpable. We do make real decisions with real consequences. And the scripture tells us all those things. And I get to the end of that. And the truth is you can still struggle with all of this. Or I can. It's hard. It's hard. And I think it's a, a witness to my own sinfulness and my own finiteness. And I struggle with those. And we don't want to dwell too much on it because it offends us. We just want to talk about that. So, what do we do? We look for an alternative confessingly, this year, beginning of the year, I just worked through a book called Four Views on Hell. The four views are eternal conscious torment, which I think the majority of the church has held since the beginning of the church. One of the views was on purgatory, the Roman Catholic view. It's kind of an in-between state. One of the views was on universalism, that God will save all people. And one of them was on annihilationism, that God will destroy those that are not in him. Ultimately, they will cease to exist. And if I'm honest, I set out to read that book, hoping and praying that I would be convinced of universalism. Started reading through it, going, "Okay, I'm going to look at all these passages and maybe I'm missing something and maybe it's there. And as I read and I prayed and I thought about it and I looked at it, what I came out with is that universalism and purgatory are untenable with the Bible. I don't think they're there. Then I looked at annihilationism. John Stott, one of my heroes, theologians, was an annihilationist. I went, Whoa, John Stott. And what I came to was maybe, possibly, but very unlikely. Still seem like you're doing a lot of gymnastics to get around what Scripture clearly says. And so my question is, is that the answer anyway? If I don't like it, I'll go find a different explanation. And I'll seek to reinvent the way I come to this. And I'll make it fit what feels good to me. So what do we do? And I think the answer goes back to what we talked about last week when we talked about suffering. If we have a God big enough to be angry at, we have a God big enough to trust. That maybe he's working in ways that I can't fully fathom. That there's part of what God's doing in all this that I can't completely see. And so is it wrong to wrestle with and ask the questions and plead with them and and go and study the scriptures and try to say no. But when it comes down to what God has clearly told us in scripture and we see that, we trust him. So I I don't get all of it, God. We we go back to what Paul says in Romans nine. Who are you as the molded to say back to the molder? This shouldn't be like this. Okay, I'm going to trust you in the midst of this, that you're working in ways that I can't fully comprehend. But the second thing I would say is when we wrestle with it and we talk to talk about these things and we look at it and our culture seems to say the opposite. And we're so frustrated or are struggling or we don't like the way it makes us feel. See, the answer is you look to Jesus. You look to the way that God has revealed himself. And the glorious mercy that God has given to his people for allowing his one and only son to come in the flesh and be willing to take the wrath of God on our behalf. And you fix your eyes on Jesus. You fix your eyes on the way that God holds perfectly together his justice and his mercy on the cross as it comes on Christ. That God is perfect justice. That his wrath is perfectly correct. We deserve his wrath, but God is also so loving and so merciful that he would allow Jesus to come and take our place. And it all holds together on the cross and what he's done in Christ. So I'm never going to hide what scripture says about hell. I'm not going to sidestep that but I am unapologetically going to be a Christ-centered preacher. That in Jesus, we see the perfect representation of what God is like. And Jesus stands saying, come to me, all you that are heavy and weary, and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will gladly take your place. Think of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, these sweating tears. Blood is coming out of his pores. He's on the ground and he gets up and he says, let's go. And they come to take him away as he's wrestling with this idea of taking the wrath of God upon himself. And Peter pulls out his sword. I'm going to stop this right now. And Jesus says, no. No, you're not. I have chosen to do this. I'm going to willfully, joyously walk straight into bearing the wrath of all those that would put their faith in me. And so, when we struggle with that, we come back to what God has clearly told us and shown us in His Son that He does love us, that He is standing there with the open arms saying, Come to me, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. That in our rebellion, in our sin, in our direct affront to you, that you continue to pursue us. That you're merciful and you're kind and you continue to come after us, inviting us. I pray today. And to those that sit here today and have not put their faith and their trust in you, I pray that you would open their eyes to see the glorious good news of what you've done. That you would draw them to yourself. That you would impress upon our hearts of what you've done for us by taking the wrath of God that we deserve and giving us eternal life in Jesus. I pray that we would be overwhelmed by the the greatness of this truth each and every day. That we would wake up thankful that you are so merciful and kind and loving to us. And that we would seek to proclaim that every moment of our lives for as long as you give us on this earth. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.